With only two wheels on the road, motorcyclists are far more affected by obstacles than car drivers. Cars might swerve to avoid something, but often they just plow through it. And if you're following too closely to that car in front of you, well, you could find yourself with little time to react. But you don't have to be following too closely to be surprised by an obstacle. It could be a trail and you're going around a corner, or maybe you're just topping a rise and there's a pothole you didn't expect. What happens in the seconds after spotting it is what makes all the difference. Do you swerve to avoid it? Do you ride over it? Can you stop before it? Miss, hit, or stop? That's what we're doing today on our Rider Skills program. We're also going to take some time to bust a few myths about braking. I'm going to fire some myths at Clinton Smout, and he's going to either confirm or deny it, but he is going to have to explain it. All this and more coming up today on our Adventure Rider Radio exclusive Rider Skills program. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Simon 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 CyclePump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Rider Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you the tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, these segments are not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you're doing so at your own risk. Now, today, our instructor is Clinton Smout. He is the Chief Instructor for Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Clinton, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. You're getting ready. I mean, you're, you're just about to go on an, another one of your adventures. You're, where, where are you going to the Yukon? How spoiled am I, really? I know, totally. <laughs> I r- ride a bike to work, ride it at work, and then ride home. And yes, and I'm really excited about this particular Yukon trip. It's the fifth time I've been there. I absolutely love it. And my sons are coming with me, so I'm really excited. Wow, that is really neat. How old are your sons? Uh, 31 and 27. That's great. So this is going to be a trip of a lifetime for for the guys. Yeah, I think they should really have a lot of fun up there. Yeah, yeah. What a thing to do with your dad. That That is really awesome. Well, they wanted to wait, Jim, until they could afford it. But I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to ride at 87 years of age. (laughs) So it's kind of a treat. But as kids, they never went to Disney World in Florida. We never had any money to go on those kind of trips. Mm -hmm. Uh, They worked their hearts out at this off-road school. You know, I would pay them 50 cents to sweep out a container or wash a bike but uh, they've earned it over the years, so I am spoiling them, but they've earned it. Oh, that's nice. Obstacle avoidance, swerving and braking is what we're talking about. Now, for us motorcyclists, obstacles appear in many forms. On the street, we may find damage on the road, um, chunks missing, 
potholes, construction, I mean, debris, dead animals. And off-road, we can find just about anything from um, washouts, maybe that weren't there the day before that you rode, to rocks, boulders, trees. I mean, I mean, the list goes on and on. We all know it. We've all come across obstacles. And really, we have two choices when an obstacle presents itself. We, we can either avoid it or hit it. And that may seem trite, but it's not just whether we hit it or miss it. It's how we do it. And the goal, of course, that we're going to talk about today is having the least negative result or ideally a positive one. And that's what we're yes. talking about today. Obstacle avoidance through swerving and braking. So what's the first decision we have to make when we come across an obstacle? Uh, I think how we're going to handle it. So being an aware rider, knowing what's going on around you, you should have checked your mirror once every 10 seconds. The experts say if you're on a street. Off-road, if you're riding with a group, uh, I prefer sweeping because I don't like people following me too close. And if they are, I'll slow right down and stop and say, you know what, in case I fall off, I don't really want knobby tire marks over me. <laughs> Plus, it's too dusty too close. So, but before I get on the brakes hard or swerve, I want to know if somebody's right beside me or just behind me. Mm, so situational awareness. I mean, that that's what yeah. we, we should have all the time. And like, in other words, when we when we see that obstacle, you ideally, as, as a good rider, you already know what's behind you. Yeah, hopefully. Right. Because uh, sadly, even off-road, people are hit from behind if they do an abrupt stop. Because the people following you aren't prepared and aren't anticipating that following distance evaporating so quickly. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's critically important not to follow too close. We say four or five bike lengths, but as your speed picks up, we double that. Now you don't want 45 bike lengths because then the person turns left and you go right by the turn Mm -hmm. unless they're watching and waiting for you. But knowing what's around you is important. So then You're riding down, let's say it's a trail, and you come over a rise and there's a tree down. So swerving might not be an option in our decision-making process because it goes right across the trail. It's a 50-foot tall tree, and it's on the ground now. Going over it, if you're traveling at any kind of speed, you might get over it, but you might not be on your bike anymore. Like that could cause a big crash. So maybe braking is the most appropriate. But you have to have your eyes up, in my opinion, scanning left to right, looking down the trail, not right in front of your bike. So the first decision we're making is what we're going to do about the obstacle. And that's kind of obvious, I know. It's either, you know, you're either going to avoid it, you're going to hit it, or you're going to stop before it. That's what you've got to decide. And a big part of our decision-making process is knowing our own riding skill. And that extrapolates into what bike am I on? What tires have I got? What is the terrain? And what speed am I going? So this decision comes from a lot of practice. Not so much years of experience. Because a lot of people say to me at motorcycle shows, they're walking by, you know, and I have a booth there and I go, hey, are you interested in some rider training? 
you know, buddy, I've been riding for 18 years. What are you going to teach me? That kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel sorry for them because their complacency and not advancing their skills or practicing something new, that could really get them in trouble. So would it be fair to say then, I mean, if you're coming up to, you find yourself coming up to an obstacle and not having time to react or not being able to get your bike to do what you want it to do to deal with this, this obstacle that you're, you're overdriving, you're, you're overdriving your abilities. Absolutely. Going simply too fast. Yes. Way too fast for your experience level. And when I say experience, not the time that you've ridden, but what you've done with that time. So I see riders all the time who grew up on dirt bikes. They come over the hill and they see the tree. They're on the brakes instantaneously, without hesitation, without much thought process. They just react. And that comes from practiced muscle memory, in my opinion. If you come up over the hill and you've got to think, holy crap, there's a tree. Uh, what should I do? Should I, should I try and slow down? Should I jump it? What should I do? It's too late. You've already probably hit the tree. Mm -hmm. And what's very common in incidents, I'm not going to call them accidents because I don't believe most of them are. It's an incident. Uh, let's take the trail, for instance. They come up to the tree. They have no practiced braking experience. Practiced braking experience gives us the quick decision-making of, you know what, I can stop in time. But if you've never done a lot of braking on that bike with those tires on that terrain that you happen to be on, you don't have the judgment skill to determine in an instant if braking is appropriate. Mm. That's what I mean by braking experience. So oftentimes people hit obstacles, they see it and they just go, ah, kunk. And they didn't brake, they didn't downshift, and they didn't try to swerve. And I believe it's because the brain will react in a panic situation to what is habitual? What habits do you have in riding? They choked. They just, yeah. you, you freeze up. You just freeze a deer in the headlights and you hit it. And that's because they haven't practiced it. It's interesting you mentioned that you said about when you're at a show. And I know you've mentioned that once before on the show here, talking about you know people coming by and, and saying that to you. And we had talked before about the Malcolm Gladwell book where he talks about the 10,000 hours. I think that became a fairly popular thing where people heard 10,000 hours of doing something makes you an expert. Well, I have just listened to uh, an interview with the guy, that the scientist that actually did the experiment that he was talking about, did the research rather that he was talking about. And he said that Malcolm Gladwell took it slightly out of context for his book. In fact, what he said was that if you do 10,000 hours of just doing whatever it is you're doing, you're going to come out pretty much the same as when you started. But I, I think he called it either deliberate practice or active practice is what he called it. He said that the 10,000 hours is when people are actively practicing. In other words, they usually have a teacher, but what they'll be doing is they'll be trying to do something and always trying to improve it, looking at what they've done and how can they do it better. 
So there's quite a difference between just putting in, for instance, those 18 years of riding as opposed to putting in 18 years of trying to become a better rider. There's a distinct difference. Both can be the exact same time, but will be completely polarized results. Yeah, I think that's a great way to clarify it. Well, um, let, let's let's talk about these things then. So I guess the first thing we should talk about is the one that we probably want to do the most is avoid it. That's probably the, that's the, the go-to, yes. would it be? Exactly. And part of avoidance is mental. So you're approaching a corner. You know, when I was 12, I rode the same trails that I rode today with, I had a group of, uh, adventure riders out for a level one BMW GS training. Mm -hmm. I'm on the exact same trails, Jim, that I rode 50 years ago. That's pretty neat. The trees are taller and bigger, but the forest is basically exactly the same. When I was 12, I had a little 175 Honda, really bad shape because it had had many owners prior to me being able to afford it. And I would put it in whatever gear was the top and rode that thing wide open, which meant I took the whole trail width to get around a corner without hitting the trees. So half the time, I was on the wrong side of the trail on a blind corner. And now I'm thinking, how did I actually get this age? Because now I'm thinking there could be somebody in a Jeep coming another bike, a tree down. So part of avoidance is anticipating that something might not be the way it was the last time you rode there. You know, off-road is suspect to a lot of climate issues, erosion with heavy rains, mud, uh, sand washes to the bottom of a hill, trees fall, Uh, people come in and dig a load of sand out, they take a pickup truck out of sand and you drop a wheel in it because you haven't anticipated it. So now I take those corners in second gear. So part of avoidance before you swerve or break is that mental chess game, thinking a couple moves ahead. You're cresting the hill. Should you be on the your side of the trail? So if you're in Australia, England, Stay on the far left because even trails have a correct side to drive on or ride on. Uh, Not everyone adheres to it, but you'll have far greater life expectancy on busy trails that are two-way traffic if you stay on your side of the trail. Mm -hmm. Plus, if you are about to hit someone head on, most people will go to their side of the trail that they're normally on that they're supposed to be on yes so so if you if you're in a place where you drive on the right hand side of the road you're likely going to as they are turn to the the right side so if each person heading towards each other goes right then you miss each other ideally it's instinctive right yeah but if it's a big vehicle taking up the whole trail it might not be your lack of still skill that causes the problem it's because there's a great big car or truck there right but maybe you shouldn't have been going that fast. So when it comes to avoiding though, when you're, when you're now you're, you're looking at some sort of obstacle and you're, you're going to avoid it. Don't we just sort of have our two options. We're going to either weave or stop. 
Yes. Right. Now, now we're, just talk, we're just talking a void here because, because yes. you, you can also go over it depending on the obstacle. We're going to cover that afterwards. We're just talking a void. So you're, you're either going to weave around it, swerve, you're going to do some sort of evasive maneuver, or you're going to stop before it. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So the avoid one could be a swerve. So it happened today. Yesterday, I took this group of uh, pretty ne- neophyte adventure riders. One gentleman bought the Harley Pan America, um, and he was a riot. He bought it. He's had his motorcycle license for, uh, I think he said, eight months. He's done a few thousand kilometers. And July the 1st, he and six other people are doing this monster trip from Ontario all the way to Tuktoyaktuk and then down the west coast of Canada into the central United States. So it's about three months, 25,000 kilometers, 17,000 miles, something like that. And most of these guys have never ridden off-road before. He was the only one of the seven who came for rider training. So I guess he's going to share all the knowledge. (laughs) So yesterday I took the group through this beautiful forest that's beside a really long gravel road. And it's fantastic entry experience for beginner riders after we'd done a few lessons. Well, I did the exact same road and forest trail today, came around a corner, I looked in my mirror to make sure the headlight was there before I turned. When my eyes went back forward, there was a monster maple branch that had broken loose from a tree in the wind last night covering most of the trail Mm. now i say most of the trail because in an instant i thought if i hammer the brakes on there's a train of riders coming around that corner behind me of new riders yeah (laughs) so somebody's falling down because we had abs off somebody in a panic's gonna grab that front brake so i quickly made the judgment call you know what There's room around the left side on the wrong side of the trail, but nothing was coming. It was flat where we could go around the fallen tree limb. And I made that second, that decision in a second. It was almost instantaneous. I didn't even slow down. I just, I was already standing up. So I leaned heavily on my left foot peg. The bike swerved to the left. The rider behind me came around the corner, saw my taillight going around the tree limb, and they all followed me. No problems, no crashes, nothing. Mm. But it was illustrative how the trail changed one day to the next. So is there a technique that you would explain to someone or that you would offer someone about how to handle a swerve? And I know a lot of this is going to do with experience because you can't swerve without experience swerving. Right. Yes. Uh, But what's cool is most of the people listening rode a bicycle. Did anybody really teach you how to swerve quickly on a bicycle? For sure, mom and dad were holding you up to get you going and it was a wobbly start. But as soon as you got momentum, there wasn't a bicycle training course for 90% of the listeners, unless you're really young. So I believe swerving, if you're a bicyclist, is an intuitive skill. But at rider training courses around the world, 
there's a $5 word called counter steering or gyroscopic steering. And basically what it says, if you're driving down a road and you want to swerve quickly to the left, you push down and out on the left bar. So imagine you're going down second gear, third gear, whatever gear you're in. Swerving is best attained without dropping the throttle. You utilize your speed to go around the obstacle. You don't have to slow down or stop sometimes. And if you wanted to go left, you pushed out and down on the palm of your left hand. That creates a lean in the direction you want to go. Most of the motorcycle is leaning to the left. Now, the analytical person looking at that may say, hang on, the front tire is leaned a little bit, pointing a little bit to the right. And you're telling me it's going to go left? Yes, it will. Because the mass of the motorcycle, most of the bike is leaned left by pushing out on the left handlebar. So to swerve or turn left, push left and disregard the way the front tire's pointing. The greatest example of it, kind of the extreme push steering or gyroscopic steering, is speedway, flat track, or grass track racing. So if you imagine it, they're always turning left. If you watch it on TV or YouTube, the front tire is at full lock to the right. But most of the mass of the motorcycle is leaning to the left. And that's how we turn. You cannot turn a motorcycle unless you create a lean. So it's very subtle. And bicyclists do it without the analytical thought process. This gets into a subject that I didn't want to cover today, of, of course. Okay, but, sorry, but, but No, no, it's okay. But but I, I'm just thinking, because it gets so confusing, because like you said, nobody taught you to do it on the bicycle. You just went ahead no. and did it. However, so having said that, and I've said it before on the show, it's it's I think understanding that is very important for street riding. And I think you've said the same thing. It, because coming into a corner, that's what may save you. If you go into a corner too hot, for instance, or the corner is a, a decreasing radius or something like that. Unless you understand exactly what you're doing, you can panic yes. and try and steer your way through and that's when you're done. That's problematic. Yeah. But I've proven you don't need to really talk about it and point out which way the wheel's going. We set up pylons maybe 10 yards apart, eight meters apart. And so they say, okay, folks, second gear, follow me through here. We're just going to zig and zag. And they all do it without, you know, the odd student may hit the pylon. But most of us will do push steering. We'll slalom through it, create swerves and turns without knowing about the, you know, push left, go left. They just do it. Mm-hmm. But that's the best way to initiate a swerve is push out on the side of the handlebar in the direction you want to go. And that's a quick decision if you know your braking skill sets. Maybe you don't have enough room on that bike speed and traction to come to a stop before you hit the tree limb. Maybe swerving is the best. 
Now, my mm. option I talked about today, I only had an option to go to the right because it was a huge maple branch a few feet around. The tree's dead and it lost a monster branch. There was no way I was going to the right because I would have hit the tree. Mm-hmm. And that decision was made pretty quickly. Now, it helped the following riders coming around behind me because they saw a rider in front of them. Each of them saw someone else successfully negotiate the turn around the tree limb. But I didn't stop them and say, okay, guys, we're going to push on the left handlebar (laughs) to swerve around the tree. Right. It would be ridiculous waste of everybody's time. You've mentioned before, probably many times now, when we've talked about this sort of thing, about where you're looking and how far you're looking on the trail. That certainly has to be taken into account here when it comes to coming up to any obstacle, just riding in general. Can you just talk about that? Yeah, I agree. I meet street riders that say, you know what? I am so sick of hitting potholes and maintenance covers. You know, they they bump into the mole and I'm thinking, uh, it's springtime in Canada we have potholes. That's part of it. Frost heaves. It gets in and it swells the road. You get a pothole. So if you're anticipating spring conditions and your eyes are up, there's no way you should be running into a whole bunch of potholes and bending your rim. To me, they're not looking far enough down the road. That's the biggest part about avoidance is seeing where, what's on. Like you got to look up to see the obstacle. Mm-hmm. If your head is down and you're not, your vision isn't far enough ahead, you're far more likely to have to keep doing these collision avoidance obstacle maneuvers of swerving and braking. The next thing that you said was braking, so like, or stopping. If so, we ever, if we can't yes. swerve around it, we're going to have to stop. So for this, what, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to do some myths versus facts yeah, about perfect. breaking. So, so how should we do this? Shall, shall I just pull out, put out the myth? Yeah. And you, you're going to bust it? Shoot the myth and oh, we'll, okay. we'll uh, chat about it. Now, here's an event that you will not want to miss this year. And the great thing is you can build an adventure around it if you want to, because it takes place in an area with so much riding potential. But the event itself is going to be well worth the ride. It's the PNW Overland Expo coming this July 7 to 9 in the Deschutes County Expo Center in Redmond, Oregon. It's a huge overlanding event, which means that you're going to find every form of transportation. But they have all kinds of specific motorcycle things happening, like, for instance, the moto dinner they put on, a party, a raffle hosted by Eva Rupert. They have free moto intro experiences for those who want to actually try riding. If you're not a rider already, or you're bringing somebody who isn't a rider. Rally games for those with their own bikes. ADV skills area. I mean, there is so much going on. Three days of this. They also have motorcycle demos. So you get to ride brand new Urals, Triumphs, Yamahas, Royal Enfields, roundtable discussions, presentations, and you can meet thousands of like-minded overlanders. You can see what other people's setups are. They've got camping there. So they've got a special moto weekend camping pass. So you're going to be camping amongst a bunch of other motorcyclists. PNW Overland Expo will have more to do and see, I think, than you can possibly do in a weekend. Over 300 exhibitors, over 175 specialized classes. Get outfitted, get trained, get inspired, get going. 
to Overland Expo PNW. Now, you need to buy the tickets in advance. Go online. The website is overlandexpo.com. Reserve your spot. And while you're doing it, make sure you throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Overlandexpo.com. Well, let me tell you about one of the best devices that I've got on my bike. I don't add a lot of things, but I'd like to add things that are really well-made that I always like to say that sort of get out of your way. In other words, they work so well, it's like they were designed for the bike. And this one is better than that. It's the Atlas Throttle Lock. This holds your throttle in position so you can relax your wrist, you can relax your arm. It takes away the fatigue of riding long distances. And as a matter of fact, it it works so well that I find myself using it on short rides as well. Far better than what I did with any other throttle lock that I've tried. The Atlas Throttle Lock is made by two motorcyclists that have went around the world on a KTM. As a matter of fact, that's where they came up with the idea. It's David and Heidi Winters. And they designed this just beautiful thing. I mean, the craftsmanship is incredible. The function of it is amazing. There's only two models that they make and they, they cover just about every motorcycle made. So you can take it off one bike and put it on another. It's got two buttons on it, one for engage, one for disengage. They give a firm, positive feedback. I mean, the thing looks amazing, but more importantly, it feels incredible to use. And while you're riding, you engage it. And if you want to adjust your speed, either up or down, all you do is twist your wrist, let go, and it holds a new spot. An incredible device will definitely change your ride. The Atlas Throttle Lock is available from atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Atlasthrottlelock.com. Okay, so, so the first one, the myth is... Using only the rear brake is safer. So if you're holding your coffee and you decelerate by lack of gas throttle or putting any kind of brake on, which way does the coffee spill? Forward. Mm-hmm. Everybody is shouting out into their radio. <laughs> so that means there's a weight transfer forward. Our front suspension compresses, which puts more weight on the front contact patch or the front wheel so we get better traction conversely at the other end of the bike the rear suspension elongates gets taller there's less weight on the rear brake so under heavy braking pavement dirt doesn't make a difference if you're using only the rear brake and there's less weight and traction the rear brake will provide very little stopping power Okay, that brings me to the next one was that applying the front brake, this next myth, applying the front brake will cause the bike to flip over. Yeah, well, in the 70s, Honda dealers would see gold wings coming in with worn out rear brakes and the front brake pads look brand new. And once the gold wing got into its evolution, it had double brakes on the front, double discs, and a single on the back. So that made no sense to them. And what they realized with analysis and interviews with customers, a lot of people approach motorcycling with the mentality of a bicyclist. You don't use your front brake, you're gonna go over the handlebars. So that myth was so entrenched in some riders' mindsets that Honda engineers developed linked braking, 
where if you put just your rear brake on, it would also be linked to the left front disc, the opposite side of the motorcycle. So at least you were getting half the front brakes. So then they saw bikes coming in with left and rear brake pads worn out, and the one on the right was perfect. <laughs> they still weren't <laughs> using the front brake. No, yeah, you'll this, go over the handlebars. It's tough to get over the, those things, that those, I, I don't know, what, what do you call them, urban myths that, that are out yes. there. And of course you say it comes from bicycling, and, and that makes sense, right? Bicycles yes. are set up differently, and it's, a, it's a, a different animal, although it looks very, very similar. And of course, the point of your story, the reason that Honda was doing that, linking the rear brake with the front brake, was because they know how important it is to use the front brake. Yes. So trying to force the rider to do it, even though by them doing it, they uh, they clearly couldn't get over that uh, that thought process. Yeah. It's really hard to get a big adventure bike up on the front wheel. It's an expert maneuver. I think I've done it a couple times by accident really hammering on the front brake and I feel the back end lighten. So it's only come up a little bit. The Chris Birches can, you know, ride on the front wheel for, you know, a couple kilometers, a couple <laughs> miles, but the average human can't do this. Okay. So the next myth, I like this one. I think we've sort of talked about this before. Slamming the brakes is the quickest way to stop. Oh yeah. Hmm. So, so we well, got two different things to look at there, Clinton, don't we? Because some slamming yeah. the brakes on pavement and on dirt do two different things. It does. And again, it depends on the motorcycle. If it's somewhat modern and it has this ABS system, what that is is let's pretend you have a certain amount of rear. Let's talk about rear brake. Your pedal moves two inches from no brake on to lock up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, at one and three quarter inches, that's normal brake application. Between one and three quarters and two, the last little brake movement is where ABS comes into play. When it senses it's about to skid, it lets go and comes back on and lets go. So if you jump on the rear brake and the ABS is on, it doesn't really cause the wheel to lock up. But if you don't have ABS or ABS on and jump on the rear brake, the rear tire is going to skid if it's loose terrain and probably going to skid if it's dry pavement and certainly going to skid if it's wet pavement. So there's a lot of variables in there, Jim. Right. There's a lot of different things to cover. So really, so if, if it's asphalt we're talking about, if it's just pavement we're talking about, riding okay. on the road, and you're, you're, we're talking about locking up the brakes, I guess it's going to matter whether you have ABS or not to begin with. Yes. And if there's any wheel that is going to skid and is recoverable, it's the rear. That's your best choice because you can ride out a rear skid, no problem at all. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a lesson we did today with ABS off, rear brake only, 20 kilometers an hour, hammer the rear brake and pull the clutch in. And that's a long skid. And what we pointed out and practiced is it often doesn't skid in a perfectly straight line. Mm -hmm. By putting weight mass onto the right side of the motorcycle, because your foot's hammering the brake, you essentially cause the back wheel to drift or slide out to the right. 
Now, if you don't correct the steering, now your front wheel is pointing to the left as the back wheel. So we tell people, there's a big hinge behind your handlebar. Point, look over the headlight and point the handlebars the way you want to go. And do not allow the bike to slide out perpendicular to the direction of travel. Because if your bike is moving and it's sideways, it's going to high side you. But the the myth being slamming the brakes is the quickest way to stop. Okay, and so we, we've set aside ABS right now. The fact is, though, when you lock up a tire and it begins to skid, that the type of friction changes and it all of a sudden becomes less friction, doesn't it? As, as, soon, as, your t- yes. as soon as your tire locks up, you have less friction. So therefore... If you, didn't, if you didn't have ABS, you take that out of the equation. And let's just imagine you could lock up that front wheel and the bike wouldn't go down because you locked up the front wheel. But yes. it wouldn't stop faster, would it? No. And if you jump on the brakes, what was the myth? Grab the brakes? Slamming the brakes is the slam quickest way the to stop. Yeah. If you slam the front brake on and it locks up, it's very easy to lose traction. Right. Now you're going to fall down. So uh, what's hard about motorcycling is we usually have two brakes and two ways to manipulate it, foot and hand. It's separate. Where in a car, you just stand on one pedal. That's Mm -hmm. all you have to worry about. All four brakes are applied. Unless you have an old piece of junk, one wheel doesn't work. But for most of us, braking in a car in an emergency, you can jump on it. And... You know, it's only if it's in the snow without ABS that that's problematic. But a skidding rear wheel will take a little longer to stop than a howling rear wheel. And what I mean by howling is it's just about to lock up. You're at the threshold of losing traction. So it's the maximum amount of brake that is causing that tire to howl a little, but it hasn't locked up yet. Right, which is, which is brings us to the ABS model because that's what ABS is all about. ABS is all about keeping the, the tire rotating against the asphalt, against the road surface, just before that point of locking up because we know that when it locks up, we actually lose traction. So it's getting it to the maximum. Is that said right? Yes, and... Um, in test after test, it's a magazine that's no longer, but I absolutely loved it. And I kept all my copies. I don't know if you've heard of it, Jim. American publication. You can still find it online. It's called Motorcycle Consumer News. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's defunct now, but and it's yes. a shame. Yeah. But 30 years ago, it was just black and white. There's no color photographs, nothing. But absolute expert journalists and test riders So they would take a new BMW, Kawasaki, whatever, and they would test it. And most magazines tell you the quarter mile speed or the time elapsed to get it from zero to 60. In England, they call it not to 60. It means zero, apparently. I think (laughs) Australia calls not too. So most people, safety-wise care how fast it goes i want to know the distance to go from 60 to zero and this magazine tested that and one of their best writers he believed and he proved it that in nine out of ten 
breaking emergency instances, ABS was better than non-ABS. And this was a pro road racer doing this. Mm -hmm. And his name was Kevin, and it's a Japanese surname, Ayanachi. I don't know how to spell it. But the test that he did, and he's, think you know, 10 times better rider than we are. In a panic situation, most people will lock up the front wheel unless they're a very experienced rider. So even in a panic, the car has cut in front of you. You can't grab the brake. What they believe is it takes one second of time for the weight transfer to get onto the front tire. This is after you've applied the front brake. Yes. Yeah. That weight distribution takes one second of time. So if you have cat-like reflexes, like a guy your age has, Jim, I don't have those anymore. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> I have a very sleepy old cat reflex. <laughs> but you could essentially lock up that front tire before the weight transfer gets there. We need the weight on top of the contact patch of the front tire before you pull hard. So most expert riders use progressive front brake. Pull it in a little bit, the weight transfer happens, now you can get on it really hard and it won't lock up and slide out mm. in most cases. That takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice and patience because there's a car in front of you that you're yeah. about to hit. But that only comes again, we get back to practiced muscle memory. And this is going out riding and, and, and with your ABS off, for instance, if you have ABS, practicing riding along and locking up that front wheel for a second and getting the feel of it and letting it go again. And because what that does, it teaches you, and I know you've said this before, it teaches you where it's going to lock up. So if you have to do it manually, you already know what it feels like. Yes. And his point was, like it took him, he did a really hard break. He would get a bike up to, let's say, 45 miles an hour. And at a braking pylon, he would get on the brakes as hard as he could, just hammer them with ABS on. And let's say he stopped in 90 feet. Then he shut the ABS off. It took him nine attempts to shorten the braking distance with ABS off. And that's one of the best riders probably in the States. Mm. Phenomenal skill. So the average Yahoo like me, I don't have a hope of beating the ABS braking. Uh, you know, you don't have nine attempts when that car pulls out in front of you. So yeah. I'm a very big proponent of ABS. And most of the world is. So that brings us back. Hang on, let, let's just go right back to yes. slamming the brakes is the quickest way to stop. Now on asphalt, with ABS, is it the quickest way to stop? Ah, well, in my opinion, it's because ABS, it's forgiving for poor braking skills with the front brake because it won't lock up and, and slide out. So you, it's more likely if you really have that cat-like reflex, it loses traction just for a second and then the ABS lets go of the brake. So I still think you should progressively apply the front brake and it gives time for weight transfer, whether ABS is on or not. 
Right. I see, I see what you're saying because you're, you're talking about the upset factor, right? Because yes. that idea of slamming the brakes on is when you slam the brakes on, ABS or not, you have a weight transfer that's going to take place. And that weight transfer is enough that could cause an upset, even if your front wheel isn't locked up. That's right. Even with ABS, I've tested it. I can get the rear wheel off the wheel, off the ground, just for a millisecond under really oh, hard wow. braking. Mm. By the um, way, I was going to mention to you, I can do that. I can lift up the rear wheel with the front brake on my bicycle. Yes. <laughs> not on my yep. motorcycle, but on my bicycle. I can do that. Right. Not not for very long, though. It's not very impressive. Right. It's only impressive to me because I can feel it happening. Yes. But okay. So so that that's the the caveat there. That whole, I think the word slamming is really what's throwing you off. That slamming it the is. brakes on is, is the quickest way. And I get that now, what, what you're saying. that That makes total sense. Okay, cool. but the one thing we didn't talk about was dirt. Now, I know you always say that we should take the ABS off in dirt. You have mentioned about the different modes before, about how some have the off-road modes, and, and that might be, might be an option. But to, to simplify things, let's say our ABS is off or we don't have ABS. Is locking up the wheels, I mean, we can just talk about the rear wheel if you want, to avoid the yeah. whole confusion with slamming the, the, the brake on and having the suspension compressed, but is that faster to stop if you lock up the tire as opposed to not locking up the tire. Yes. Um, where I can probably explain it was a lesson we did today. So stage two of emergency braking in gravel, we had ABS off, rear brake only. So it locks up and it slides a very long way. Stage three was ABS off, hammer the rear brake, create that skid. Because you're pushing an amount of gravel in front of the locked up wheel. That decelerates us. But the shortest stopping distance was when the rider applied one finger front brake in addition to the locked up rear brake. Mm, of course. Yeah. And we said one finger because from years of doing this, if people go for the front brake in kind of a panic situation with all four, the power of your whole hand will go past the threshold of traction. And it's going to lock up the front tire. And usually what quickly follows is a lesson on how to pick up a fallen motorcycle. <laughs> and it's not that the rear wheel is lifting up and going overhead. It's that the front wheels are going sideways. And you're going yeah. down very, very quickly. Right. Yeah, that's hard to recover. Right. And what you explained there, though, with, with the, the tire digging in, you're, you're kind of putting a wheel chalk in front of your tire, aren't you? Exactly. A wheel chalk of dirt. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that makes sense. That really helps. So what we practiced over and over again was developing a feel for front wheel traction. It could be like we're advocates of one finger front brake only coming down off-road hills, non-pavement. One finger front brake coming down the hill. So what might be great traction where you are right now, 10 feet further down the hill, it's sandy or muddy. That degree of front brake, if you don't adjust that by releasing partially, you're going to fall off your motorcycle. And that's an over-the-handlebar one. So we don't want that. It's the exact same thing when on flat ground on gravel roads, you have to develop a feel which comes from, I hate to belabor the point, practicing when 
is the front tire going to lock up and slide out on me, create a skid? Mm-hmm. The best stopping distance is attained just before the front wheel locks up. And I have the best sensitivity with one or two fingers doing that, not four. You just made a really good point there. I just want to emphasize that may, have, may be easily missed. You just said about the front brake, the, the best braking is right before it locks up. We're talking no BS, no a, no BS. We're talking no ABS here. Yes. <laughs> um, no BS as well, but no ABS. Yes. So, um, but the rear wheel, the rear wheel, you can lock up and you're going to get better traction of that. So that that's an interesting difference between the two. That front wheel, we want to get it right before it locks up and the rear wheel, it's okay to lock that up in the dirt. Yes. What we used to teach at a racetrack was no rear brake at all on a paved racetrack. Front brake is everything, but there's an appropriate time to use it. You do your downshift and braking in most instances, especially in the era when I was out there, we didn't have slipper clutches and things like that. So you you don't want to go, you know, 50 miles an hour and drop down two gears and let the clutch out because it's going to lock up the back wheel and it's skidding. It slides out. Mm -hmm. But what we used to talk about was do your braking at the appropriate time before you bank it in. Now there's trail braking and all kinds of things, but that's conventional wisdom for the street on a paved road. But in the dirt, it takes a lot of practice to get to the point where you can recognize that front tire is about to slide and modulate it a little. Right. And how do you, how do you figure that out? <laughs> well, level two, it's practice. But in <laughs> level two BMW, one of the lessons, and it's not for the faint of heart, you stand up so peg steering works. And imagine you're just in first gear, Jim five miles an hour, eight miles an hour. You cover your clutch, but you have it out. You have the gas on, so you're riding along, not a lot of gas. Then you slowly apply the brake with the clutch out and the gas on to the point where you feel weight transfer forward and you carefully apply a little more, a little more until the front brake locks the front tire. And it's now skidding in the gravel. So your butt is as far back on the where the passenger would be as possible to lighten the front end. And you see how far you can ride with the front wheel locked up. And I know it sounds insane, but it's a very valuable skill for, you know, especially an aggressive rider who's going to go at higher speeds and needs to know how much front brake can I get on before it locks up? Mm-hmm. And you, you develop a sensitivity of how much brake to apply and also develop a sensitivity with, okay, it's locked up. When is it going to slide out to the right or left? Because that is going to happen. And that's when you fall down. Unless you can adjust your balance and adjust your weight into your pegs to keep it going straight. Most customers are lucky if they get a yard before they have to let go because the bike's going down. Yeah. And as soon as you let go of the brake, it regains kind of a sense of traction and stability and it won't fall over. But having that skill and practice of knowing when to let go 
is fantastic. Another myth we have here that um, you're going to like this one. But is um, it Jim? Is it the myth that because you're an instructor, you're a fantastic writer? <laughs> you saw that one. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. no, no. See, I can <laughs> prove that wrong. That is a myth. This, the myth is never use the front brake going downhill. And you know, oh. it's it's amazing because I know we've talked about this before, Clinton. I, I know you've told stories about this, et cetera. And yet I still hear people talk about this. So, okay. So the myth again, never use the front brake going downhill. True or false? Uh, false. Okay. Absolutely false. If you go to become a BMW instructor, as I did in 2010, I think, there was the head German instructor's name was Tom Wolf, Thomas Wolf. <clears throat> Amazing guy, absolutely incredible rider and instructor. So he had us go up this mountain, turn at the top and come down front brake only. And I got to tell you, Jim, I thought the guy was nuts. There was no way I was going down that steep of a hill with just the front brake. So I completely disregarded his instruction <laughs> and I used both brakes. Well, at the bottom of the hill, I guess he saw the dust coming off my back wheel. He took his glove off and he put his hand on my brake and felt the heat. And he may have yelled, Schmout again. <laughs> so I had to go up. I was the only one that had to do it twice because everyone else believed him. Right. So now, you know, that was a long time ago. I am an absolute believer in front brake. I've adapted it to one finger front brake because... A lot of beginner adventure riders cannot modulate all four. So one or two, but I'm a fan of only one because you don't want a ton of front brake. You just want to breathe on it to control your descent speed. Okay, well, that we're, we'll leave it at that for, the, for busting the myths. What I want to get you to do now is, is maybe give some tips for for stopping, but maybe before that, because you'd mentioned about gearing down, do, do we want to talk about gearing down and using yeah. that with stopping first? Should we do that? Absolutely. Cause it's, uh, so many riders have different opinions. Okay. So, so the thing is like, I mean, you could turn that into a myth too, that, you know, the, the gearing down thing that you either don't need to gear down or you absolutely should gear down. I think a lot of people will say you need to gear down. So maybe you can just talk about that first. Yeah. Uh, let's put it in an on-road pavement scenario. Okay. Very important to gear down as a habit. So I'm talking about you're in fifth gear, you're approaching a red light, down into fourth, clutch out, down into third, et cetera, et cetera. So you stop, you're in first gear. Now it's a panic situation. Because we're talking There's obstacles and, and, and we're talking that yeah. something is there, right? That's right. A car's turned left in front of you, saw you, panicked, and they stopped in your lane. You can't swerve around them because there's traffic everywhere. You've got to stop. To heck with downshifting and letting the clutch out. You don't have time for that. We talk about in novice training, pull, push. Pull is with both hands, Jim. Front brake application, clutch disengagement. Push is with both toes down, rear brake applied, and you downshift. Now, if you were in fifth when this happened, you're going to stop in fourth. At least you stopped. But that's only half 
of the collision avoidance. You can say to yourself, whew, sheesh, you know, that car cut me off. I didn't hit it. And then you hear some tire squealing behind you. Which vehicle stops in the shortest distance, our motorcycle or our car or truck? My point being, other bigger, larger vehicles, perhaps with an inattentive driver, you know, they got to check their Facebook. They couldn't wait till they were home. That's the person who hits and severely injures or kills motorcyclists. In the studies I've done, the statistical analysis says the third highest fatality causation factor is the motorcyclist stops and is hit from behind by a larger vehicle. Mm -hmm. So if you downshift just once in an emergency, you're in fourth gear, Jim. When you hear these tire squeal or the uh, you shoulder check and see the taxi coming at you sideways that happened to me one day. So what we're advocates of, when you downshift, sometimes you don't have to let the clutch out, but you should definitely be in first once you come to a stop at the intersection or stop sign. That way, if you shoulder check once you've stopped, and you see a car screaming up behind you, you can let the clutch out and go around the vehicle that cut you off and get the heck out of the way. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And along with what you said earlier, is that whenever you're going for the brakes, you want to look in your mirrors and see what's behind you. I mean, you should already know, but you definitely want to check again. Exactly. So what happened today with all these adventure riders practicing emergency braking I laid it out to them. You could be on a gravel road and a Jeep or an ATV comes out and blocks your path, but you don't know really who's behind you all the time. So they're looking up at the instructor to see how well they've done. That's human nature. But for muscle memory, we wanted them to shoulder check. So I asked the two instructors, Pez and Paul, don't stand at the end of the braking box where we expect them to stop. Move 10 feet in front of the braking box. So they're going to pass you and then want confirmation and adulation of how well they did. They're going to turn around and look at you, which is the shoulder check memory, muscle memory that we want. Mm, I see what you do. You're training them to look back. Yeah. Yes. But, um, again, you practice, practice, practice shoulder checking when you're stopping. You're going to do it in a panic situation because it's habit. See and be seen. That's what Cyclops Adventure Sports is all about. And for us motorcyclists, that is huge. In fact, when you think of lighting of any kind for motorcyclists, you should be looking at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops was founded and is owned and run by motorcycle riders just like us. So they know what the challenges are for us riders and they know what we want, more importantly. Cyclops has LED plug-and-play lighting for most motorcycles, replacement LED headlights, 
CAN bus plug and play systems, all designed specifically for motorcycles. I mean, they have a ton of products available. They even have helmet mounted headlights for serious off-roaders. They've been making lighting for motorcyclists since 2002. In fact, if, if you'd like to hear the story behind Cyclops Adventure Sports, we did an episode on them a few years back. Check the show notes. I'm going to put a link in, in the show notes for this episode back to that episode, and you'll get an idea, a better idea, of what their company is all about. Anyway, their website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here from Adventure Rider Radio. cyclopsadventuresports.com. Did you realize that a larger foot peg disperses your weight and makes your ride more comfortable? A wider peg also gives you more leverage when using your foot pegs to control your steering on your bike, which is a lot of what we do on adventure bikes. But changing a foot peg can also change the relationship between your brake and your shifter and your foot, which is why you should get pegs that are specifically designed for your bike, specifically designed for your style of riding by people who know how to do it and can be trusted. IMS Products has been making parts for motorcycles since 1976. And when they design a part, they put all those years of experience into it. Just look at the off-road racing circuit and how many riders stand on the podium with IMS logos on their bike. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, all cast 17-4 certified stainless steel, all built in the USA, and all have a lifetime warranty. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Uh, just the, the one thing I wanted to go back to again and just sort of talk about for a minute, because I wanted to ask you just to, to give some, maybe some tips on the stopping, which you've already done, right? You've already sort of went through everything, but you did mention something earlier that I just wanted to come back to again. And that was applying the brake and getting the weight transfer. And you mentioned about how we can apply the brakes, even with anti-lock brakes, for instance, you get on that front brake and it starts to chatter, but then once the weight transfers to it, there's more braking available for you. You can actually apply more. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And again, practice. Different surfaces will give you different uh, braking responses, obviously, with traction changes. But uh, what really works well if you're on just a regular gravel road, where most road users go, it can be like pavement, can't it? Where Mm -hmm. the tire tracks are. So if you're there, you're going to get better braking than in the looser gravel that's between the tire tracks of trucks and cars. So if you're riding in the tire track and you have to do a really quick stop, reach out and gently apply the brake slowly. The weight transfer happens so quick, one second. Then you can haul in on that front brake lever much, much harder but you have to give it time for the weight transfer to happen. And that way you'll get maximum braking efficiency without locking up the back, the front wheel because then it slides out and you fall down. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's um, it's, it's almost like um, energy not used, braking. It is definitely braking not used. You know, you have, you've got more braking power there to, to apply Um, But you're only going to feel that through practice, like you're saying, going out and and doing it over and over. And if people have the opportunity to take some rider training, it might be thought of as advanced rider training, what we're talking about. You know, the basic course to get your license in most places in the world is how to start it, how to move off with the clutch, shift gears. 
but it really doesn't get in depth into really hard, hard breaking. That's a little bit more advanced, but it's worth the expenditure to get some good constructive coaching on how to do it in a safe, controlled environment and manner. Going out all by yourself and trying this, please be careful because, you know, the front end, there's a very thin line between traction and locking it up if your ABS is off. And uh, so people have to be careful practicing this. We're, we're talking about an advanced skill, but it's a skill every single rider should have, in my opinion. There'd be far less accidents. Okay, so that leads us to our last one, which is hitting it, which could seem bizarre at the outset. In what instance would we hit it, Clinton? Well, let's say the, let's, what obstacle are we talking about? Okay, I'm going to say like to, to begin with, let's say it's a pothole, some sort of hole. Okay. So it's either, in, yeah. it doesn't matter if it's asphalt or dirt. Okay, so maybe your vision was down or like a 12-year-old Clinton who didn't know he needed glasses yet. I didn't know I needed them, Jim, until I took my license test. <laughs> How scary is that? I grew up in the country. I just sat at the front of the class and really close to the TV. Then at 16, the guy administering the vision test said, buddy, you've been walking around like this? So I got my first pair of glasses and wow. The world was so oh, crisp <laughs> and beautiful. So at 12, it rained for three days really, really hard in my neighborhood. I couldn't get out on the dirt bike. It was torrential rain. Now I would think of what has that rain done to gravel roads? All the streams and creeks that went under the gravel road were overflowed, gorging with water, very fast current. So what happened was it overflowed the culvert that went under the gravel road and it washed away the entire road on top of the culvert. So there was like a three foot drop and about a five foot gap to a shiny culvert. So I blame it on my parents who didn't know I was blind. But when it stopped raining, I got out on that little Kawasaki 85 that I had, 1969. And of course, I got to go around the gravel road near my home, wide open, as fast as it would go in fifth gear. So maybe 80 kilometers an hour, something like that, 50 miles an hour, because I was a little nuts too. Did I mention that? I think I picked up on that already, Clinton. Blind and crazy is a bad combo. So at the last second, Jim, I see this shiny culvert. Holy crap, the road's gone. There is not a hope that I would have been able to break. So I had to go over that obstacle. So what I did is I dropped a gear so I would have more power available. And I was sitting down. So I stood up and I tried getting the front wheel elevated by pulling up on the bars and giving it full throttle when I dropped a gear, I got the front wheel over. Sadly, the rear wheel <laughs> did not make it over. But you've seen people on horses that are bucking. Mm -hmm. That was me. That back tire went up. So the seat, even though I was standing, hit me in the butt. 
my feet went off the foot pegs, but maybe it was because I helped my dad break horses for so long, or it was just pure survival. I knew I was going to get major hurt if I fell down. So I'm basically doing a handstand on the handlebars until I got rid of the wobble and got it under control. And I sat down and I continued. (laughs) That is one lucky. That is one lucky. But when I said pothole, Clinton, I wasn't really picturing the road washed out. This was a gap. (laughs) Okay, let's say it's a pothole. Right, but but I like what you're saying because this could be applied on a smaller level. So so maybe we could just tone that down a bit and say, okay. Yes. Pothole. It's not a gap in the road. Right, not a gap in the road, but a, but a it's pothole. It's just a big pothole. Exactly. Not an evil Knievel jump, just a pothole. That's right. You're following the truck in front of you on the gravel road or paved road, maybe a little too close. So by the time they uncover the pothole and you see it, you don't have the time to stop. And you don't have the time to swerve. You have to go over it. What we recommend is stand up, get your butt off the seat, and try to maintain a loose grip on the bar. But boy, is that hard in a panic situation. You're going to grip the bars, the grips, white knuckled, which that's almost inevitable. It's very hard not to do. But if you're loose, and squeezing the bike with your boots and knees, you can go over the pothole and make the suspension will work better if you're standing up and you're more like a horse going over a jump, a jockey and a horse. You're one with the vehicle. If you're sitting down, the front tire may go into the pothole and it'll get out the other side. But when the back wheel hits it, it's going to come up and hit your spine if you're sitting down. And that could knock you off the bike over the handlebars. So it's really important to stand up. Much like in your description there of your of your road washout story. Yes. Which is that same thing. But And, and what about gassing it? Yes. I was going to say the instinct is to say, oh my God, I better slow down. What happens to our suspension when we chop the throttle or get on the brakes? We were just discussing that. It compresses and we we lose our suspension, really. We don't have any travel left in our suspension. So if you could have the presence of mind to drop a gear and gas it just before you hit the obstacle, the suspension at the front elongates. It comes up. So now you hit it with as much travel as it was designed with. Because even when we sit on our bikes, the front suspension sags down a little bit. Sure, static sag. Yes. So if you give it a shot of gas and are standing up, it elevates to a high, the highest shock length possible and way more likelihood of you getting over the pothole or maybe it's a muffler that you have to jump over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I was thinking your your example maybe a nicer example or better example for us would have been a pothole just over a hill, you know, as you as you crest a bump. But 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 we get yes. it. We get what you're saying for sure. Now, and you and you were talking about you know elongating the, the suspension by gassing it. it. It makes the back stand up and elongates the back. It it extends the the front forks and it also releases some of the the pressure on the front fork suspension. Well, that's the, what the elongation does. 
So it's it's softer for the impact of the tire when it hits the edge, right? So if it hits the edge of the pothole, it's easier for that wheel to go up. So less chance of maybe a bent rim or a snake bite or something like that. Exactly. That giving it gas also works. Potholes are below the road surface. What if it's a muffler and it just fell off the truck right in front of you and it's spinning down the road coming right at you? You don't have time to swerve or you probably shouldn't break because you're in traffic. Maybe you'll be hit from behind. Stand up, drop a gear, give it a shot of throttle. And even a gold wing will jump right over the muffler. Mm-hmm. Is this an advanced so, skill you're describing right now with the muffler coming at it? Yes. <laughs> um, what I used to do at motorcycle shows is advanced riding tips with Clinton Smoke. So I put a microphone on that's going to speakers in this huge indoor area. You know, the police would do demonstrations. There'd be stunt riders. And then a stunned rider, Clinton, would come out. And I'd do kind of advanced braking skills. And I'd narrate what I was doing. I was saying, you know, if there's a muffler and you can't avoid it, watch this, folks. You can go over it. And I would narrate on the approach just before I hit it. I would compress my weight into the foot pegs and handlebars preload, squish the springs. Then just before I hit the muffler, I would let the clutch out and give it a little shot of gas, which helps the spring rebound up, elongating the suspension, jumps right over the muffler. So I did it a couple times and I thought, okay, one more pass. And I thought, I'm really going to hit it because you'll get some air off of that. And I was riding a Yamaha FZ09 or FZ09 if you're in the States. So as I approached the muffler, I really compressed and I gave it a handful of throttle. And I went over the muffler and I heard the crowd go crazy. And I thought, wow, Clinton, you're a hero. You must have got some good air for the crowd to go crazy. And everybody's yelling. And then I drove a little further. I went to turn around. And it was like the back wheel fell off the motorcycle because what I had done, I hit the muffler so hard, it smashed into the oil drain plug on the bottom of the oil pan. And it punched the oil drain plug up into the engine. And all the oil came out all over the back tire. And this is in a paved area where everybody else has to do riding. Oil is not good when the stunt riders or the OPP police team are out there. So I almost dropped the bike and I was so embarrassed. What an idiot, because I was showing off and almost fell off as, as a result. Mm. So I quickly threw the bike on its side, but you know, three liters of oil had already come out. And I was only halfway through my demonstration. <laughs> so. I went up to the stunt riders and said, listen, buddy, can I borrow your bike? So it was one of those trick bikes. They have the rear brake up on above the clutch. So when they're standing on the gas tank or something, they can still use the rear brake. So that's what I finished my demonstration on. 
I'm amazed and that, that the, the, the guy let you have it. I thought you were going to say, he's going to say no chance. <laughs> well, a lot of those guys have had multiple, multiple concussions, Jim. Oh, right. I see. <laughs> yeah. So you could talk them in anything, but it took the maintenance crew, the cleanup crew for the building I was in at the Toronto exhibition, like 20 minutes to use all the special cleaner to get the oil off. But what a moron. Well, I think we've uh, we've covered it, haven't we? As far as hitting it, that sort of goes with everything. And hitting it is one of those things that is um, I, obviously all of this, swerving, hitting, these are all going to do with what you said right from the start or early on was you're going to have to get out there. You have to practice. You're going to have to understand your own limitations, get a feel for your bike, and then you're better off no matter what you come across, whether you have to swerve or whether you have to stop or whether you have to hit and go over. Yes, now, we don't want nasty calls or emails from people, Jim, who have listened to us and have dented their front wheel. So if you have a spoked wheel, a laced wheel, you know, 60 spokes in the front or something, they're more likely to take the shock of hitting a muffler or maybe you start with a 2 by 4 or a 4 by 4 hunk of wood to practice going over obstacles. But if you have a solid rim, you know, there's five spokes only and they're metal. They're far more susceptible to being bent in potholes and hitting rocks or going over logs. So you want your tire pressure up to the maximum suggested pressure. Don't ride with soft tires thinking you'll get better traction if you're off-road with these solid wheels. Because those are the people that have dented rims the most on the adventure tours I've been on. Hmm. And what I have to do, if it was tubeless, I've got to uh, put a tube in that wheel just to get them out. So, Clinton, just to wrap things up, what homework or personal practice can people do to get the hang of everything here? Swerving, stopping, and going over obstacles. Well, swerving you can do in traffic. Not in and out of what I'm saying is in your own lane, you see a grease spot, a maintenance hole cover. Don't go over it. Use and finesse, develop your push steering skills. So if you want to go to the right side of the maintenance hole cover, push on the right handlebar. And it's a very quick change of direction. Zig and zag around things and develop that finesse with swerving. Then take it to a big parking lot. If you can't take a rider training course, go with a friend. It's like swimming and set up, you know, could be a pop can and then approach it and then do an abrupt swerve to the left and right around it. Develop that quick change of reaction without dropping the throttle. Because one of the benefits of swerving is whatever you went around is now behind you. You don't have to worry about stopping and being hit from behind. So that's where swerving around an obstacle has a pro. Okay. So again, you don't practice hard braking in traffic in a controlled environment, a parking lot you're allowed to be in, and start in first gear and do straight line braking. And then change it to make it a little more difficult and a little more challenging 
by increasing your speed moderately and trying to shorten your braking distance to the point where you develop braking judgment. How hard do I get on the brakes in order to stop where? And when do I get on the brakes? So it's when, how hard to stop where? That in my mind is braking judgment. And most people out there on the road don't have that. Because in an emergency or an obstacles in front of you, you don't usually have time. Well, you know what? I think I'm gonna try braking. Yeah, let's do braking. And then you realize, you know what? Crap, I'm gonna still hit it. Get off the brakes and swerve. Mm-hmm. That's a hard thing to do. Okay, so so swerving. Now what about going over, hitting? Yeah, I would start with a two by four hunk of wood just to get the feeling of the suspension bumping up. Then go over the same two by four by giving it a little shot of throttle just before you hit it. And now it is an abrupt, it, as abrupt a hit because you got more suspension because you just elongating it with a little shot of throttle. Then when you get braver, try two two by fours nailed together, which would be a four by four. It's good to have something square because a round item like a rolling pin will roll away as you go over it. And that could be dangerous for traction. Mm -hmm. But the idea is you get the concept of you got to get your butt up off the seat and then give it a little shot. And your vision, part of it is psychological. Don't stare at the log. Stare at the terrain in front of the log. And you're telling your brain, we're going over this. We're not going to stop and hit it and fall down. Part of it's psychological. So you got to, I talk to myself a lot when I, not out loud, Jim, but as I'm riding, we can do this. You're not a loser. You can go over this. Give it a shot at throttle. And with practice, that experience in your own riding ability will tell you when you see the obstacle, if you should swerve or break or hit it. Well, Clinton, that was great. That was lots of fun. Thank you very much. And you have a great time in the Yukon once again. Thank you, Jim. We'll talk to you when we're back. Sounds great. Thanks, Clinton. All the best. Bye-bye now. speaking with Clinton Smout, Chief Instructor for Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Their website is smartadventures.ca. We've got some photos illustrating what we're talking about here today, uh, as well as a link to Smart Adventures, all in the show notes here on adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, 
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, you. Thank you very much for being a part of this by listening, and I hope you take what you learned today from Clinton and really give it some exercise, I guess you could say, or as Clinton said, practice. Anyway, get out there and ride your bike. Well, I, before we go here, I just want to remind you that um, this, is, this is several ways you can actually help out the show. If you enjoy the show, you, you get something from it each week when you listen to it. There's, there's several things you could do. One, you could become a supporter. That would be great because I, I know, I think a lot of people sit back and think that everybody supports and it's just a small percentage. I mean, the show is extremely popular, but just a small percentage of people actually support the show. That would be huge if you you could do that. Drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com, click on support. But another way you could do it is share it with people who may not know about it. You know, get the word out. Give us a, a review on, on wherever you're finding your podcast or maybe on Facebook or something and let other people know about the show because that helps other people find it. Anyway, if you could do that, that would be much appreciated. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks very much for listening. Get out and ride your bike and I will talk to you next week. I'm Lyndon Poskett, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 